Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There are many reasons why we sabotage for example, you could be someone that is really scared of rejection and you just feel like every time you put your work out there, you are reminded of something that happened to you in art class when you were 10 and someone saying that you're rubbish. But there's also another way that we sabotage, which is when we're scared of our own success. So for me, I started self-sabotaging when I started doing quite well and I basically wanted to shrink, I wanted to be small, and I basically sabotage myself. But all in all, it's basically wrapped in fear. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast with me, your host, Poppy Jamie, the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. This show is about giving you a pause to nurture and nourish your mind, body, and soul. Each week I speak to world experts, authors, scientists, and inspirational leaders to share their wisdom and advice so we can all live better from the inside out and reach our full potential. I hope you join me on the journey. This week, my guest is the formidable Emma Gannon, a Sunday Times bestselling author, speaker, novelist, and host of the number one careers podcast in the UK, Control-Alt-Delete. She's been blogging since 2009, podcasting since 2016, and is the author of four books. Yes, Emma is the epitome of a multi-talented genius, or as she likes to call herself, a multi-hyphenate. And you may have heard of her book, The Multi-Hyphenated Method, which is a manifesto for creators working in new ways to harness all their talents. This year, Emma released two books, She's Been Busy. Her first novel, Olive, that hit number one in the Apple audio charts, and Sabotage, the book we'll discuss in today's show. It's a fascinating insight into the ways we all self-sabotage, the fact we all have a capability to get in our own way. We're vulnerable to hurting ourselves unnecessarily 
through the shitty committee in our heads. Emma also writes a weekly newsletter called The Hyphen that is an exploration of new ideas to feast on. This episode is in partnership with a brand I love, Acorn, a drinks brand that is innovating the wellness world through their range of non-alcoholic aperitifs. You may relate, but I've definitely had moments when I don't want to drink alcohol and that's meant I end up socialising less. It's either or. But why should not having a drink be preventing us maybe from enjoying being with our friends? So when I came across Acorn, I was immediately a little obsessed. I found their drinks to give me this mood boost, but yet there's no alcoholic content, just delicious bitter botanicals. When I dug a bit deeper, I realized this brand believed everything that I also did. It is female founded and was created to address the problem I was having. I wanted to socialize, I wanted to feel included, and I wanted to feel like I was having a treat of a drink but didn't want the hangover or the other side effects that alcohol sometimes brings us. Acorn has the same textual qualities as wine, packed with wellness benefits, but alcohol-free. So I was over the moon when we decided to partner to share the message of connecting, celebrating in a new way, building new relationships with old things. I can't wait for you all to hear the conversation I had with their founder, Claire, next week. So on to today's episode, and let's talk sabotage with Emma, who is a woman I love connecting with either for drinks or over a podcast. Enjoy. What is your favorite quote you return to and why? I am not someone that writes down loads of quotes, I'm going to say, but there's something that I heard recently and I'm going to put it out there. It's by Ricky Gervais, <laughs> who I know is quite polarizing. So like, if you're listening, just ignore that he said it. He said that he's not interested in becoming more successful. He's interested in becoming more honest. Ooh. And that is just a bit of a penny drop moment for me I think at this stage in my career I genuinely feel like I just want to be more honest that's where I'm at gosh that is so lovely and also something that we can all apply in our own lives in terms of not wanting more friends but more honest friends exactly and I guess more connection which really goes against the influencer culture we're in at the moment where numbers seem like they're everything especially to young people I really want to go back to basics and strip it all back again and realize that it's really not about lots of people watching what you're doing but just you know the right people the people that want to be there that is so refreshing thanks for kicking it off with that what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently something I've been reminded of recently that has surprised me because it's quite basic but the power of music I used to love music when I was younger. I used to be that person making the mixtapes and listening on your Walkman in the back of the car, daydreaming out of the window. And I recently interviewed a psychologist actually about why lockdown has made us so nostalgic for the past. So I've just been digging into a treasure trove of old music and just makes such a difference to my happiness. And what did she say the reason for that is? She said it was two things. She said it was one that we can't go forwards really at the moment. We can't make any plans. So we, we go backwards. And the other thing was that we, in times of crisis, look for kind of childhood comfort 
And so sometimes that's rooted in music and memories. So it makes sense that we're going back into our nostalgia and kind of, I don't know, it's like a blanket that you put over yourself, I think. Yeah, it's so lovely. I've definitely been doing that. And how do you define happiness? For me, happiness is such a complicated word that I haven't really nailed down yet. I think that I like the word contentment more than happiness. Maybe they mean the same things to me now, but it's really just feeling like I have enough. We're, we're you know, led to believe in this consumerist society that we never, ever, ever have enough. But on the days I just feel like, yeah, got enough here. I'm feeling happy. I love that. And I think this kind of leads into your book, which is knowing you are enough as you are without trying to, as the title of the book says, sabotage yourself. So I'd love to kind of just start with why do we sabotage? Well, there are many reasons why we sabotage. And I think in the book, I try and go through all the various ways. And, you know, this isn't a traditional self-help book that is going to cure your life because I don't believe in those books anyway. But it's very much like you kind of have to self-diagnose. Like some bits will probably resonate with you more than others. For example, you could be someone that is really scared of rejection and you just feel like every time you put your work out there, you are reminded of something that happened to you in art class when you were 10 and someone saying that you're rubbish. But there's also another way that we sabotage, which is when we're scared of our own success. So for me, I started self-sabotaging, actually not at the beginning of my career, but quite recently when I started doing quite well. And I basically wanted to shrink. I wanted to be small. I couldn't read any nice emails. Um, I read all the horrible emails and I basically sabotaged myself. So there's those two different things, but all in all, it's basically wrapped in fear. That's what self-sabotage is. You use the term in the book and athletes use this term of choking. Can you explain that? Yes, that was really interesting to me because I found it really weird that the more accomplished I got, the more I doubted myself. I remember doing talks when I was like in my early 20s, going on stage, being so confident, coming off stage, not really analysing it and going to bed. And then now in my 30s, I'm just like a nervous wreck whenever I have to say anything on stage. And obviously the book and talking to all the therapists in the book has helped me again. But choking is a word that's used in the sports world where some of the most amazing athletes in the world suddenly just think they can't do it anymore and start making some really basic mistakes again. And it's all psychological. And yeah, it's fascinating to me. I think so. Obviously, this links into imposter syndrome. And in a way, like the more successful and as you write, the more successful you became and you've had numerous bestsellers and your podcast is a humongous hit. But yet it's amazing how we can't see ourselves, how other people see us. Exactly. And we would compliment our friends, wouldn't we, if we saw what they were doing? And yet we can't see it in ourselves. I think it's to do also with this thing called arrival fallacy, where we will think one day we have arrived, life is good, we're just at the end, we're content, we're happy. And it's just such BS that we will ever arrive. There's literally no arrival, it's just, there's no destination, even though that sounds so cheesy. As someone that has published like four books now and thinking that every time a book comes out, I will have arrived, I've not. I'm 
back to square one. And that's not meant to be demotivating. It's just kind of life. So how did you find, in what ways were you aware of you self-sabotaging? What kind of behaviours were you doing as you write maladaptive coping strategies that you suddenly thought, I need to get a grip on this? Well, I think I was just really hard on myself. And that is an element of self-sabotage, the inner critic. So in the book, I talk about lots of different types like perfectionism and procrastination and um, not self-promoting yourself because you're scared. For me, it was the inner critic. So it was just telling myself, all the awful things that actually no one else was really telling me. It got to the point where I was almost like my biggest troll. <laughs> I wasn't really old that much, but I was the troll. So <laughs> I tried to really get over that. That was my self-sabotage. And actually something that really helped me on the topic of imposter syndrome was something that Seth Godin said, and it blew my mind because it reframed the whole thing for me. He was like, if you're someone trying new things, writing books about topics that no one's ever written about, um, doing a talk that might go a bit wrong because it's new and exciting, or you're an entrepreneur, you are an imposter because no one's ever done it before. And you can't promise people it'll work and you can't promise people that you exactly know what you're talking about because you don't. And the minute I learned that and I was like, oh my God, the relief, like I am an imposter. And then once the book is written, then it comes out and I feel like I know about the topic. I'm not an imposter anymore because I've done it. So if you're feeling like an imposter, then try and just lean into it. I think I had to do that when I wrote my novel. I'd never done it before. So of course I was. On the subject of online trolls, I just thought you summed up bullying in the most interesting way because uh, you said, I've never read anything I haven't thought of myself. And I thought, that's it. That is why any bully, whether they are in real life or if they're online, the reason why they're so painful is because they're not the first person that has made us feel that way. It's our own inner critic that said it first and there's a consequence we're triggered. And if we obviously work to have a kinder inner voice, anyone else that says anything to us, we have so much greater strength to be like, that's not true. Well, exactly, because I think we're programmed to believe the negative stuff somehow in our brains. Again, they want to protect us. That, so they look out for the negative things because they're like, we well, should learn from that. But if you try and reprogram yourself to be kind, now, if I get a really horrible comment, I don't believe it straight away anymore. And that is a huge shift for me. I still take on criticism and I still take feedback and I really believe in like calling people out when they've done something wrong. But I just noticed how I've like retrained my brain to be like, oh, I don't know. I don't agree with you. I think I'm I think I'm OK. <laughs> and that is the most powerful skill I think any of us can learn and spend a lifetime working on. So in your book, you mention a bunch of different tools that have helped you to do that. Which ones would you say have been the most impactful for you? Well, I have taken on board so many of the things that people told me about. Two that spring to mind just quickly is one is this, the sunk cost fallacy, which I think a lot of therapists talk about is when you notice that something isn't working, but you think instead of quitting, you think, oh, I should pummel more resources into this because I don't want to lose what I've started. And that is something I think about all the time. I mean, there's so many examples in my life and in the past of being like, even being in a relationship with someone and being like, well, I've been going out with you for a year, so I better stick with it. No, actually, you need to leave. 
So I think about that all the time I start a new projects. Like if it's not working, it's not working. I don't want to keep scraping around trying to make it work. And the other thing is learning kind of how to not rehearse so often. So in the book, I interview Anna Martha, who talks about rehearsing, which is when you rehearse like you're in a school play, all the bad things that are going to happen to you. And I used to be really bad at this. I used to be like, you know, rehearsing like the darkest things like about my family, you know, thinking like, well, that's going to happen one day. And I'd sit there and like pretend it's happened. Not helpful. So she breaks down how there's literally no psychological benefit to rehearsing. So I've tried to nip that in the bud. Great tips. And I also, you know, you mentioned how powerful journaling is. Obviously, you're a writer. Do you still enjoy journaling just kind of day to day for your emotional well-being? Or do you see it as work? I don't journal in the traditional sense of having a notepad. That's never really worked for me. And I don't know why. I just like lose the notepad. And I'm like, oh, that didn't last. But what I do do is I suppose... I do it in a different way, which is like I send myself emails or I'll, you know, have like a Google Doc open of ideas. Like I'm very much putting post-it notes everywhere, but it's just not handwritten, if that makes sense. Completely. Just like jotting it, calming your brain and then in, in, in different ways. I think that's nice for people to hear because sometimes I think, again, we can't stick to these formal practices. We kind of set ourselves up for failure in a way where we're like, I'm going to journal for half an hour every single day. And then we don't. And then we don't then get the benefits of journaling. So that's a nice tip. Just like sending yourself an email. Yeah. And sometimes I think you just have to get it out, which is why journaling is great. For example, as well. And this is just like a random thing that I do. But Sometimes if I'm really frustrated or I get an email that like annoys me, I'll write a reply (laughs) in my drafts and it's my version, like for me. And then I can write a reply properly like the next day. I just feel like writing and getting things out of your system is really, really good. I really feel I should heed that advice because sadly if every anyone who's worked with me everyone knows I'm a little bit of a sender <laughs> oh I've learned this the hard way sleeping on it is good but it's hard yeah sleeping on it really is the best so going back to sabotage there's a couple of uh, points that I just thought are fascinating I'd love to discuss with you one being that we are so unused to the feeling of things being good. And I just, when you were talking about that, and I think you used your relationship as an example, that you were in this relationship, I think the relationship you are in now, and it was really good. And then because it was so good, you want to leave. Was that an interesting point to you when you when we really analyze the fact that we, how sad that we are terrified of things being good? Yes, that was inspired by a quote from Brené Brown, the queen of everything the queen when when she was on Oprah and Oprah asked her what's the scariest emotion for humans and I think Oprah thought that she was going to say like death or destruction or heartbreak and Brené was like the most frightening emotion is joy Mm. because when you feel happy like genuinely happy you immediately think when's this going to be taken away from me Mm. and I mean I don't have children but for the book I interviewed a lot of different people and they said that about having a kid it was like you are so happy that you have this precious thing to look after. But that joy is quickly followed by terror because you love something so much. And um, yeah, I suppose my my only example of that is really was falling in love, basically, and being like, I need to run away from this. <laughs> but, you know, luckily it, it worked out. 
what has helped you sit with things being okay and I guess you know it's quite a Buddhist philosophy which is kind of don't be too attached to things going terribly and don't be too attached to things going well kind of ride them all from more of an outside perspective but has there been anything particular that has allowed you to receive goodness into your life and receive joy without having this terrified need to flee that so many including myself do well yeah I think even during lockdown I've become a bit more at peace with the idea of like that we aren't in control and it's ridiculous to even think you are so preparing yourself for the worst case scenario can be really helpful but we are kidding ourselves if we think that we know what's going to happen. So uh, it's really helped me in a way to just go with the flow, you know, you, and also with relationships, I think it's like this Buddhist mentality, like you said, which is you can't control anyone else. You can only control your own thoughts. And I think there's a bumper sticker quote that keeps getting shared on Instagram about this, but it's basically like, let people come in and out of your life as they please. And I really believe in that. Like if my boyfriend tomorrow was like I don't want to be with you anymore that would have to be okay because you can't make someone stay with you Mm. so obviously that would be horrific but um I think you have to make peace with the fact that you can only do what you can you can't control other people And, you know, in your book, you touch upon having, you know, building up that muscle of self-trust that whatever happens, if somebody was going to come into your life and out of your life, that you know that you trust yourself that you're going to be okay. And I don't think school ever taught us or anywhere really has taught us about developing self-trust. It's us. It's us doing, reading, expanding our mind to develop it ourselves. Has there been anything that you've done or read that has helped you nurture this evolving self-trust that you've gained? Well, I've been reading a lot of self-help books over lockdown by Martha Beck and those sorts of amazing people who believe that you literally like will be okay, whatever happens. Not just the rainbows and butterflies version, but you know, people that have been through hell, how they've come out the other side and how sometimes you have to jump into a burning flame and kind of renew yourself. I guess that's the old story of being a phoenix reborn. But also I read Option B years ago by Sheryl Sandberg. It's about a book about resilience and a book about how she kind of got over the death of her husband. And I think resilience really is the key Obviously, it's not the same as um, it's not the opposite of being being sensitive. You can be sensitive and resilient. And that's something that I aim for. Like, I don't want to lose my sensitivity. It's it's my greatest power. It's why I can write. But it's the cheesy thing of like, you can't control what happens, but you can control what how you react. So true. And I love your point about sensitivity and resilience, because I think up until now, we've had quite like this masculine approach resilience, which is like, ah, don't say anything like bounce back. And actually, it's such a superpower. And I think it's had such a bad rep. It's true, because I asked Glennon Doyle this once when she came on my podcast, I was like, how can you be resilient and also be a snowflake in quotes, because our generation are known for being like, you know, we can't deal with much. And she basically said, the most powerful, resilient thing you can do is lean into your emotions and be vulnerable. Like it is the back to the vulnerability is power thing. I feel so resilient right now because I'm not afraid of saying how I really feel. 
And one of the tips you give in your book, which I thought was a lovely tip, is to allow yourself a sad hour or a sad run, just to feel your feelings without, and this is what really hit me, without distraction. I would love for you to explain, like, what is your sad hour and how did it come about? Funny, lots of people have asked me about this sad run. I mean, I was quite embarrassed about putting it in, but I was like, oh God, I'm really going there. Um, Yeah, I do this thing where I basically pick like the saddest song. (laughs) Um, and go for a run sunglasses on hopefully no one can see me Uh, it's the same really I think as going to the cinema and watching a sad film when you need to get it all out that is another tip I love doing that I remember going to see Titanic I mean I must have been really young (laughs) but I was like I just need a good old cry and I rewatch that now if I need a good old cry sometimes you just need to let it all out and there's nothing wrong with that I do not understand this culture of like don't cry, don't let it get to you, just jolly on. It's like, no, you've got to schedule in the time to be sad, <laughs> even though that sounds a bit um, a bit strange. But but I do, I put it in my calendar sometimes and um and say, like, you know, feel it. Don't don't scroll, don't go and have a glass of wine, just sit here and feel it. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of Alain de Botton. He says that he really enjoys being sad sometimes, and like he leans into that melancholy. And sometimes I think that we're really losing out on other human emotions by saying they're bad. I don't think there's anything bad with feeling feeling sad. Yeah, I love a good cry. For some reason, I think over, over lockdown, I think everybody was probably had heightened emotions. Yeah, and do you feel do you feel good after you've had a good cry? Like, do you feel a release? Oh yeah, because we have a in our family we're big criers. And <laughs> sorry if my brothers are listening to this, but my two brothers are just as much of a crier as I am, and we will burst into tears as a family. Like one person will set another person off, will set another person off, and then we'll have to leave restaurants <laughs> because the whole family is crying. I love that though. There's a real connection in that. I think it's <laughs> <laughs> got we sound like a whole heap of fun. Um, so moving on to your um, beautiful point and I don't know whether this is a British thing because I'm not sure if my US friends struggle with this so much but the fact that we sabotage ourselves by making us feel or act small because we think we're going to be more likable and I'm sure everybody's asked you about this point because Mm -hmm. it is just so true how does this play out for you when did you start noticing it Yeah, I really noticed it when I went to the US. People want to connect you with other people and they want to celebrate you and they want you to be proud of yourself. And we don't act like that over here. I don't know why we should be bigging ourselves up more, bigging other people up more. But yeah, there's just a real British thing around like self-deprecation, laughing it off, making a joke. And I don't really want to do that anymore. And there's a bit in the book really about how you can spot people who don't want the best for you or don't want you to take up space. It's a really, really tricky topic. And I'm not saying in the book, like cut off a friend who isn't happy for you. But I am sort of encouraging people to look at your inner circle and just see if it is serving you in the right way, because that is an element of sabotage in who you surround yourself with. Like we can sabotage ourselves by hanging out with the wrong people sometimes. Completely. And I think you shared a story about a new friend, you know, when you didn't necessarily see the red flags. Would you mind telling us a bit more about that? It's funny with the red flags, because you can only see them in hindsight. At the time, you can just justify any red flag. There's like a pile of red flags. And I'm like, <laughs> that's, that's fine. 
Um, but now I think as you get older, you start to spot them a bit more. Um, it's hard to say because I think sometimes they're so subtle that it's completely mi microscopic and it's hard to see over time. But um, yeah, I talk about a friend in the book who who actually is kind of a bit of a mixture of a few different examples because I didn't want to really write about any one person in a book like this. It felt a bit weird. Um, but yeah, it was just comments kind of like, oh, no, I wouldn't bother doing that. It probably won't work out. Or, oh, don't be nervous about your talk. I'm sure it'll be fine. But God, I would be nervous if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> like these kind of comments that you just think they're almost more painful because they're so subtle. Absolutely. And as you said, it takes a while to realise that they're not having a good positive impact on your mental well-being and it should be protected at like at all costs. Yeah. And I remember Lucy Sheridan saying about clean energy, which I really believe in. So someone can say to you, um, I don't agree with you. And I actually think that business idea is bad and let's work on it together. Or, you know, something that's like critical, but uh, constructive. I like that. I like energy that's clear and clean. I think if something is like feeling icky in the delivery, that's when you should try and unpick it a little bit. Yeah, I completely agree. It was just a really useful anecdote. And again, the honesty, I mean, you really are living by the quote you shared at the beginning because the honesty in the stories and they're so relatable and it's so honest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of like leads me on to your introduction of shine theory, which I just, I hadn't heard of before actually. And I just loved it. What is shine theory? I love shine theory. So it was coined by Aminatu So and Anne Friedman, who are the hosts of Call Your Girlfriend podcast. And they've really like copyrighted it. That's theirs. I love it. It's about how you shine when other people shine, basically. And even though that sounds like a kid's TV presenter, happy, happy, what it really means is you genuinely do get something back from lifting up another person. And like that might sound a little bit selfish, but it, it's really just proving that this competition that women especially have with each other is so detrimental, not just to them, but to you, that like you living a competitive life won't make you shine. And a lot of people kind of find shine theory really hard to get their heads around because they just they don't understand how you can kind of live a life where you lift others up, maybe before yourself. But I I truly believe in the kind of rising tide lifts or boats thing. When I see someone doing well, I'm like, wow, that means we can all do well. It's not just individuals. How has that kind of played out in your own career? Because obviously you've always been in an industry where I guess there is a lot of comparison because, you know, writing and, and novels and stuff like that. Has Shine Theory really kind of helped you dissolve any sort of kind of comparison? Yeah, it definitely has. And, I, and you know, in the book, I tell quite an honest story about when I got really, really hooked on comparison. I talk about a mysterious one particular person who I got really obsessed with. And I would like look on their social media every single day. So I was looking at someone else's life before I'd even had my own breakfast. That is not good for my mental health that's not good for my career that's that's not good for that person and probably how I'm acting with them and yeah the shine theory thing made me realize that as much as I'm a writer and podcaster and a creator I'm also a consumer I read so much and I listen to podcasts all the time and I and I buy people's stuff 
and want to support them. So like when someone creates, I get to consume it. Like how exciting. So shine theory for me is like, if someone gets a book deal, I'm celebrating because I'm thinking I get to read it. How lucky am I? And so I think you need to kind of flip it on its head and not be like, oh, that person's making something. It's, oh my God, cool. Like we all get to tap into this. You were OG podcaster. You set up podcasts before people even know what the word podcast meant. One thing that I think your podcast, you know, and your book um, does so well is you are so sensitive in the cultural climate that we are currently in. And you use one of Dr. So's quotes, which is there's going to be no belly breathing that is going to relax you uh, or make up for structural or systematic racism and, you know, the disparity and privilege and all of that. And you really make such a concerted effort to make sure that you are always being a supporter of every single voice that you can possibly find. How has this year been for you? Because, you know, you are an empath, you really care about social issues. Like, what is your stance on that? And who's, I guess, has been your kind of inspirations in navigating these conversations? Yeah, I um, definitely wanted to put that up front in the introduction that this book is going to be taken in many different ways by many different people because, yeah, there's no breathing exercise or quote or journal that, that will cut deep enough to solve systemic problems in the world and I actually saw a tweet recently that said to do with COVID that we are all in the same storm but we're all in different boats in terms of some people are in a dinghy some people are in a yacht some people are in like a medium-sized yacht like do you know what I mean we are all in different boats in terms of the safety the structure and what we have to get through the storm and it really made me think like this is definitely a harder time for so many more people and I, I don't know who I'm really looking to to navigate through this time I think if anything something that I have been doing is rereading old books that brought me comfort before this time and probably will in the future I think sometimes we are in this culture as well of consume consume read 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 all the books and and I'm sure people look at me and think god she reads a lot and I don't ever want to make anyone feel intimidated by that but actually, I haven't been reading that much and I haven't been creating at the moment. And um, yeah, just doing doing what I can, really. So lastly, I would love to talk to you about um, your kind of exploration of winning and this idea that we are, I think we're redefining so many things across the board. And, you know, I think your book redefines, as you said, re-navigates this idea of sabotage and why we do it and not to be so mean with ourselves when we do it or if we do it. And winning is something that you also kind of look to redefine. In what ways have you rethought your thoughts on winning? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, that we really do live, I think, through this lens of winning and losing still. I think in our culture, we do think of, you know, getting the trophy, getting the the medal. And if you don't, you fail. And I know that is worse in American culture. You know, you watch these Netflix documentaries about the cheerleading squads and the youth um, sports teams in America and how it is all about winning. That is exactly what it's about, being number one. So uh, for me, yeah, I tried to reframe it in the book a bit about how we really don't know if someone else feels like they're winning, even if they, even if you think they are, you know, there's people that have all the money, all of the good looks, and they probably wake up 
some days thinking they're not winning. Like we don't know what's going on in other people's lives. And so there's no point really comparing. So I like to think of it as you get to win what you say you are winning. So if you think about a racetrack, you get to put the finish line wherever you want. So I put my finish line back when I actually published my first book. That was me winning. Like for me, it it was just like, I want to publish a book. That's all I've ever wanted to do in my life. And I might have been like 75 when I published my first book. It just so happened, it happened early, early on. So now I do feel like I'm just doing what makes me happy on a daily basis now. Everything's a bonus. And I just think that we kind of, in a way, maybe should lower our expectations a little bit. Maybe we've already won. And that is such a positive note to finish on. Maybe everyone who's listening to this, you've already won. And I'm sure you have already won in so many different lanes in your life. And yet we forget to kind of notice those things. If you've had your breakfast and you've taken your first breath of the day, you've won. (laughs) Absolutely. In this current time, honestly, like that is a huge accomplishment. Well, thank you so much. Where is the best place to find you, to ask you questions? Um, And I will obviously put links to Emma's absolutely incredible podcast if you haven't listened to it yet you've got hours and hours and hours it's going to be an (laughs) epic like if you're going to go on holiday soon you can just sit there and listen to basically emerald week and um and links to her book as well but where's the best place to find you so yeah i mean leading on from what we were saying really about going back into a kind of smaller smaller world on the internet i am writing a newsletter every week called the hyphen and you know somewhere I'm hanging out on more than somewhere like Instagram for example at the moment so yeah find me over there we can't wait thank you so much for your time thank you thank you for listening it would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating subscribing and sharing this podcast I also would love to hear from you so please find me at poppy jamie on instagram DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com